Welcome to Brain in a Vat. Um, today we are joined by Jacob Held, who is the editor of a book on Stephen King and philosophy. Um, Jacob, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Yes, I would. I'd actually like to think about um, the end of the Tommyknockers, which is actually one of my favorite Stephen King books, um, which is also one of the most maligned Stephen King books. I know a lot of people aren't fans of it. Um, but what I find fascinating about the Tommyknockers is, is I think it really exemplifies King's ability to draw out characters and to draw the reader into an empathetic connection with the, the characters. And so at the end of the book, um, we, we have uh, kind of a everything coming to a head in the Tommyknockers, right? Obvious spoiler alerts. I'm going to give away Tommyknocker stuff. But um, so so the whole town of Haven has become under the thrall of the Tommyknockers, right? The whatever is going on with them being possessed or addicted by the Tommyknocker tech. Um, you have Hilly Brown, who sent his little brother David off to a foreign planet through a, a magic trick. And then you have Guard, who's the the alcoholic writer who's struggling with his friend Bobby, who's going through all these issues. And, and he realizes that everything's coming to a head. And one of the last acts he does um, before he dies in, in the book, what, one of the last acts he does is to go to the planet to rescue David Brown, right, to get him back. And what, what I found particularly poignant about that is throughout this mammoth tome of 800 pages, 900 pages, all you have is a constant degradation of Haven. Everything's getting worse. It's further into despair and suffering. And there's a point at which uh, Guard, the, the alcoholic writer, um, is thinking about David Brown. And, and, and he has a statement where he says, either the kid matters or nothing matters. And, and it really brings back this idea that, right, you, you have this, this world falling apart, full of suffering, these frail, vulnerable characters and recognizing that among all of that, right, there, there are possible responses other than helping, right? You, you could fall into nihilism, you could fall into pessimism, um, all these different kinds of attitudes that we, we would probably excuse if somebody fell into, given that circumstance. Like you could appreciate and probably understand if somebody started contemplating suicide or giving up at that moment. Um, but Gard doesn't. Uh, he says, you know, either the kid matters or nothing matters. And there's, there's a, a, a sentence near the end of the book, um, and I actually pulled it out so I'd have it. And it, and it was the, and, and it's actually the moment, like when I read that sentence, that's when I decided, like consciously decided that, that King was going to be one of, one of the authors that I was going to consistently read because there were these gems in there. It says, David's hand groped for the blanket, found it and pulled it up. 93 million miles from the sun and 100 parsecs from the axis pole of the galaxy, Hilly and David Brown slept in each other's arms. And what I liked about that quote was it brought home how in all of these worlds that Stephen King creates, they're immense. I mean, I mean they're vast. And, and, and cosmically, the characters are tiny. They're small. They're insignificant. But at that moment, you have that connection and, and you recognize that regardless of how vast the universe is and how small we are in a grand scheme of things, right, in, in a kind of cosmic view, that we're infinitely valuable to each other in that basic connection. And, and, and that's what I really find interesting about King and the way he writes horror, right? Um, H.P. Lovecraft opens The Call of Cthulhu with that famous statement. 
about, right, if we could possibly understand how massive everything is, we'd realize how insignificant we are. And it's this kind of setting up, setting up a sense of our, our, our worthlessness. Um, and I think King brings that full circle and says, yeah, accept to each other, right? Accept in that kind of bond to each other. So that's, it's fascinating to hear you speak about this partly because um, one of our more famous guests is David Benatar. Um, and David came onto our show and discussed exactly this distinction between the cosmic view of our lives versus our kind of um, more human view of, of what we're going through um, on an interpersonal level. And he said that the cosmic view is the only one that matters. So when you want to look at the value of our lives, look at us as these tiny, tiny specks, these tiny ants within this massive uh, cosmos, and you'll see that what these little ants do makes absolutely no impact on a cosmic level, and so our lives have very little meaning. They might have meaning on our local level, but on, an, on, a, on a global level, on a cosmic level, it it's, it's insignificant. We have, this, we have virtually no meaning whatsoever. And what's so fascinating about writers like Stephen King, well, specifically Stephen King, is that he's particularly brilliant at constructing a world, as you say, and still characterizing characters in a way that we deeply empathize with them. So I'm curious, um, it seems like this is a debate that Stephen King is having with his readers as well um, and coming to a different conclusion. Uh, than David Benatar comes to. You know, Nietzsche had a famous response to Schopenhauer um, where he said, refutation of Schopenhauer's pessimism, he played the flute every day. And so what, what Nietzsche was saying, I think it was the flute, not the violin. But um, what Nietzsche is saying there is, if, if Schopenhauer thought the world was as dreary and pointless as, as it was, why would he put all this effort into playing an instrument? Why would he bother, right? Obviously he found beauty. So refutation to David Benatar, if he's so insignificant, why does he bother going on your show? Why does he bother doing anything? If none of it matters, end it, man, right? I, I mean, if so, so obviously there's value somewhere, right? I mean, I mean, even if we go back to Camus and the myth of Sisyphus, even if the value is just in the revolt, in the struggle, um, we do find value somewhere. Uh, yeah, cosmically, we're all worthless, um, but that's trivially true, right? Because if, if I go on a murdering rampage, yeah, I had an impact, you know, and, and if I just help somebody in a time of need, I have an impact. If I, you know, if, if I bring somebody a meal, if I just show a, a basic kindness, smile to somebody, you know, um, which they can't tell now because I'd have a mask on. But if, if, if you just show those basic kindnesses, that makes a difference to people's lives. I think it's easy. It's it's easy to step back and go cosmically. Everything's pointless. It's trivially true because that doesn't actually help us answer any of the fundamental questions that philosophy tries to address, which is, you know, crafting meaning in human life. I mean, it fundamentally just punts it and says there is none. Um, but lived experience would refute that. Uh, practical experience refutes that. We know there is meaning in how we treat other people. We know there is meaning in how we're treated. Um, and, and that's not to inflate our importance. That's not to give ourselves this kind of ego boost, like, oh, I'm so great and I, I matter so much. Um, but it is to point out that the things that we do do have an impact 
even if it's only local, that's the only impact we can have. And so that's how we need to orient ourselves. You know, you work with what you got kind of thing. So one of the powerful things about King's writing is this putting the reader in a situation where you viscerally confront horrible things. Um, you know, you have death and suffering and torment. So a couple of things seem to be interesting about this. First of all, why do people choose to be put into that world, that imaginative world where they they feel genuine terror? Um, you know, why elect that? And the other one is, is there something useful about being able to, let's say, push the limits of our of our world into a world that's supernaturally horrible so that we can reflect on our, our own situation? There, there's two ways to look at it. Um... In terms of the why would somebody want to put themselves in a state where they feel that kind of terror, um, I think of it similarly, you know, when my wife watches melodramas, right? And I'm like, why would you want to watch somebody in a horrible relationship whose life is fall? Oh my, that's misery. That why would you do that? But she thinks the same thing about why would I read Stephen King, right? Why would you want to read these horrible stories about people's children being murdered and mutilated and so on? Um, I think I think the benefit of that. Not, not to um, to kind of diminish it. I, I think it's it's practice, right? I, I think putting yourself in that experience um, really does it flexes your empathy muscles. It flexes your emotional intelligence. It's it's good exercise. I mean, thankfully, the majority of us probably who are listening to this this uh, video or you know that we're talking to, the majority of us come from pretty privileged backgrounds, right, in, in the history of the universe. Um, we suffer things, right? We have missteps and, and we have um, tragedies and so on, but nothing like you get in a Stephen King novel. But what that experience does is it, is it helps reconnect us to that idea because it gets easy to get in a habit of complacency and contentment and so on. And so forcing yourself inviting yourself into an environment where you have to engage with loss and fear and terror and suffering, I think it's it's good practice. It flexes those those empathetic emotional muscles and, and you discover yourself in that, right? You just, I, I mean, I have this when I have conversations with my oldest who, who now enjoys reading those things is we talk about character motivation. We talk, well, why would they do that? Why would he do this? I would have done it this way. And you're experimenting in a way. It's no different than doing case studies in an ethics class, right? You're saying, what if I had to face this type of a situation, this type of a struggle? How might I respond? Who am I? Um, from a purely intellectual point of view, I think the supernatural gives us a bit of um, leeway to think things that we can't otherwise think because we're too vested. Um, I think that Orson St Scott Card has put it that way before, that, that sci-fi allows us to engage in thought experiments without our real world connection or investment, investment getting in the way. So the example I used to give, um, and this dates me, of course, is when I would teach uh, capital punishment, retributivism, and so on, um, I used to use Angel from the Buffy the Vampire Slayer um, series as an example. And I would say with Angel, you know, we look at Angel and people are like, oh, there's redemption and he's so good now and he's so great. And you can start playing with ideas of redemption and just desert and so on. And it's easier to do that than when you look at a multiple murderer, right? Or you look at somebody who's convicted of gang violence. Um, it's easier to divest yourself 
from the real world circumstances and actually play with the concept and play with the idea um, because your own biases aren't at play, right? You don't have a bias against a vampire. You don't have a bias against Angel. But if you're thinking about somebody convicted of gang violence, you might very well have a conscious or unconscious bias against young African-Americans in that community. You might have um, prejudices that cloud your judgment. So um, I think personally engaging in that is good practice. It, it helps us develop uh, th those kinds of skills that are often too, too neglected because our lives permit us to neglect them. What, I, what I'm curious about is why horror has gotten such a bad rap compared with other forms of fiction. So we are doing this empathetic exercise and to some degree thought experimentation in all types of fiction, right? Because fiction is a thought experiment, right? Any type of fiction, any type of, uh, you know, we, we imagining a world. Um, now in horror and science fiction and fantasy, that world can be very different from our own. Um, whereas let's say in a thriller or, or one of your wife's melodramas, it's more similar to our own. Um, but those thrillers and melodramas have gotten, if you have a look at IMDb scores for, for genre movies, those, those movies do a lot better, right? You know, on average, uh, rom-coms and, and thrillers and more mainstream genres do a lot better. They have a higher average IMDb score and horror gets a bad rap. I'm, I'm curious to know whether you think that is an injustice to horror um, or do you think that horror just is bad or most horror is bad? Is it a necessary feature of horror that it's bad fiction or have just, has it been, as, as I said, is it an injustice? Have people misunderstood horror? You know, horror, it's just, you know, you mentioned other genres, but fantasy is the same way. And so is sci-fi, right? And even, even now, right? The, the comic book genre, right? Superhero genre, because wasn't it Scorsese that came out and lambasted all the uh, Marvel movies, which he might have a point on quality of movie, but not on genre, right? And, and I think it's, I, 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 I don't want to say it's an injustice, because that implies that there's some sort of like movement against it or something. But um, I think, I think horror has got a bad rap, just like fantasy and sci-fi. And I think part of it is because so much of it is derivative, right? That is, it, it's very, it's obviously formulaic. Whereas, you know, the melodramas, I would say, are formulaic as well. Or rom-coms, right? I mean, every rom-com is somebody's in a relationship, they're unhappy, so they cheat, right? Which is romanticized. That becomes the ideal relationship. That relationship has a rough patch about two-thirds through that gets resolved and everything's happy at the end, right? And if it's a successful rom-com, there will probably be a sequel. But so so those are horribly formulaic as well. And, and I, I think they're homonymously called comedies, right? Because I've never seen anything funny in one of them. But horror, fantasy, and sci-fi, you get a certain trope and it gets beaten to death, right? It, it, and so you have something like, you know, the Friday the 13th franchise, Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, the Halloween franchise, which you can look at the first movies and go, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street's not a bad movie. Nightmare on Elm Street 3, yeah, you're struggling, right? The, the, you know, I mean, it, it did have, it had a Dokken song in it, which was good, but but it, it's it's trying too hard, right? And the same thing with the, the further Friday the 13th and so on. 
And it might be that horror gets a bad rap because when people think of horror, they think of those films, right? They think of that kind of slasher violence gore and they see it superficially. But when you read horror, and, and I mean good horror, right? So I mean all the way down to like weird fiction, like H.P. Lovecraft and Mackin uh, and those you know people. When, when you're reading good horror, right? It's not gore. It's not violence. I mean, when you, I mean, Stephen King, a lot of what he does, I know he gets painted as a horror author, but a lot of what he does is weird. It, it's, it's fantasy, it's sci-fi, it's bizarre. Um, and so I think some of it's probably just ignorance is, is that the, the view people have of horror is a superficial view from the few exposures they've had and they haven't gotten deep enough into it. Right. Which is what my wife says about her melodramas. Right. When I'm like, oh, this is trash. This is garbage. And she's like, well, you don't know if you read the books, you would love blah, blah. Right. It's the outlander and all that kind of thing. But um, but I think the same thing goes with horror that there's a lot out there. And like any art, when you have a lot of it, there's going to be a lot of bad art. Right. But then there's good art, too. You know, I mean, I mean, there are a lot of painters out there. Very few of them are, are Van Gogh or Matisse. Very few of them are Renoir, right? There's a lot of bad painting. That doesn't mean painting is not a good visual art form. It means you have to look for the good one. And then you have to give it time. You have to appreciate it, right? If you just walk through a museum and you look at a Renoir and go, well, I don't like those colors. They're garish. And you walk away, you're missing something entirely. Um, so horror. It, it requires an investment. It requires time. You, you have like anything you have to go, well, I'm going to look for the good examples and then I'm going to give the good examples time. And Stephen King is good examples. The problem is the movies that are made out of Stephen King's books tend to not be very good. And, and, and I think that might be because of the format. It might be that when you try to translate a 900 page book, into a two hour film and you want that film to be marketable to a mass populace, you've got to get rid of the subtlety and go for the big scare and go for the gore and go for the big, you know, go for that kind of big cinematic experience. Whereas anybody who really reads King and appreciates King knows it's atmosphere. It's atmosphere and it's character. And, um, and you can't translate that well on film, maybe the small screen, right? Maybe as, as you know, you get more of these mini series on HBO Max and Netflix and so on, translation will be better. But I think a, a, a lot of King's work is done a disservice when it tries to get translated to film um, because you don't capture that immersive experience. You know, Salem's Lot is a short book, it's 350 pages, but it's not just a vampire story, right? It, it, it's, not, it's not a vampire movie. It's something else entirely when you read it, right? It's an immer immersive experience. It's a despairing experience. And, and, and it's not terror, right? But it's this kind of overwhelming sense of just, I, I don't know how to express it, right? But just dread almost, right? Of everything's just paranoid and everything's wrong and everything's weird. And, and, and it's hard to communicate that on film. And so I, I, think, I think horror like any genre, it's easy to dismiss if you just take a few of the examples that you know, but it requires time. So when we're evaluating a work of art, 
Do you think that we should have a set of principles that are abstract, that could be applied to any form of art, in other words, a painting, a play, a song, uh, or do we need to have a set of principles that go into a particular form and then maybe even narrower? So to say, if you're going to evaluate something, you need to take genre into account. So you can't ask, is this a good novel? You have to say, well, is this a good horror novel? And then we have to have some sense of, you know, what constitutes good horror. But I think you do have to take genre into account. Um, and But I'm also, I'm wary of abstract principles of assessing art. Um, because when I think about art, and, and again, this isn't like a fully articulated philosophy of art theory. But when I think of art, what I'm really thinking about are creative human endeavors that are meant to communicate to other humans some fundamental experience, right? Art for me is really a, a way in which we connect to other people through the act of creation, right? And that's very Hegelian. That, I think that's he the way Hegel explains art, right? Is this free creation where we kind of recognize the other in the object. Um, and so I don't know that there, there have to be abstract principles to it, right? And, and, and I, I'm often wary of that because when you think of the abstract principles, all, all the way back to Kantian theories of art, right? And the critique of judgment where it's this disinterested viewer, right? This disinterested observer um, looking at a piece of artwork. I look at it and go, you know, but that's not why we look at art. When we look at art, we don't look at it disinterestedly. We want it to impact us. Good music is music that makes us feel. Good literature is literature that makes us feel. Good, good art does something to us. It affects us in a way. If somebody can, really esoteric example, if somebody can listen to the song Soul Shine by the Allman Brothers and not be moved, I think there's a hole in their soul, right? Like I, and I, and I have this with my kids, right? I try and push my music tastes on my kids all the time. And, and it's like, you should listen to Queen. You have to love Queen, right? If, if Freddie Mercury's voice doesn't do something to you internally, viscerally, there's something wrong with you and we should probably get you therapy. But, but that's, I know that's entirely me being subjective, but good art does that, right? Good art moves us. And so the idea that we need abstract principles to assess art, I, I think, to a sense, it neuters it, right? It takes something away from it. Um, but in evaluating what makes horror good horror, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, obviously you're going to have some sort of criteria, right? Uh, if we're saying it, you know, that, that good art communicates something about the human to us or, or a human condition or gets us uh, empathetically engaged or that good horror inspires these feelings uh, so that we can engage them and, and play with them and experiment emotionally or, or what have you, um, then good horror is going to be horror that does that and bad horror is going to be horror that doesn't. Um, but I, I, I think, yeah, genres are, are unique. So Jacob, I'm quite interested in this idea that um, there is a genre called horror. Um, so we've been discussing how you might evaluate it and Mark asked whether we should evaluate it differently uh, to other types of, of genres. Um, but I'm curious what horror is exactly. So in the discussion so far, um, you've described horror as portraying certain very negative things as well as intimacy or connection. Right, so you've got you've got the brothers um, ha having this strong connection to each other in this terrible world, um, 
So years ago, I listened to an audiobook of Stephen King's collection of short stories called The Bizarre of Bad Dreams. And between each story, he gives a discussion on the story himself um, in his own words, in his own voice. And um, I, I had, at that point, when I listened to, to The Bizarre of Bad Dreams, I'd been writing horror myself, science fiction horror for about five years and reading Stephen King's books for many years and watching a lot of horror. And I'd had an experience while watching horror and reading horror that I never could quite understand and I thought was a, a deficiency in my character. And that is that I would find it very funny. So I would find a lot of what happens in Stephen King's books extremely funny. And I would kind of try to damp down that, that humor in myself and thought this is some sort of sadism in me that's a problem. But then in The Bizarre of Bad Dreams between uh, two stories, Stephen King says he gives a sort of definition of horror. I'm not sure if it's supposed to be necessary or sufficient, but it's a characterization of horror. And that is horror is deeply funny. And the reason it's so deeply funny is it involves um, laughing at someone's misfortune and feeling very bad about that and feeling very uncomfortable about the fact that you find their misfortune so funny. And horror is that feeling. Horror is the feeling of discomfort at, at being amused by someone else's misfortune. Um, and, and I found that very interesting. And that then got me thinking, but then what's the difference between comedy and horror? Um, because comedy often involves misfortune. So, you know, if you have a look at, at classic comedy or slapstick comedy, it's, you know, these characters going through, through uh, terrible misfortunes, you know, uh, slipping on a banana peel or whatever it is. Um, and yet it's not horror. So I, I'm curious about how one defines horror at all. In Dance Macabre, I, I forget exactly how he phrases it, but but King gets at this idea, not that horror is laughing at the other person's misfortune, but that it is this um, this discomfort. It, it, it's like a misalignment between your expectations and what the world is, right? It's it, it's where everything's disordered, where everything's wrong, where it's chaotic. Um, and the interesting thing is there is that that um, connection between horror and comedy. If you think about what comedy is, like the best comedians are the comedians that highlight the absurdity of human existence and then laugh at it as a defense mechanism, right? And so if I think of the best comedians, right, um, unfortunately, given his recent past, I think Louis C.K. was genius at this. Um, and, and I was distraught when when all the accusations came out, right, of sexual harassment and, and, and whatnot, because I thought he was a comedic genius when it came to really highlighting the absurdity of the universe. But even uh, mainstream comics like Jerry Seinfeld, they're very good at that, right? Like, I mean, his show about nothing and then his stand-up is all about absurdity and pointing out how ridiculous human existence is and then just kind of mocking it for that. And horror does a lot of the same thing. I mean, there is that similarity that, that horror takes and, and through supernatural means, obviously, um, highlights that kind of absurdity. 
and that and that and that feeling of pointlessness, right? That that it doesn't matter that that you're small and minute in in the grand scheme of these things. I mean, you think of like Lovecraft and Cthulhu, right? And it's like, well, why would I matter in a world where that existed, right? And the and the same thing with Stephen King. I mean, I mean, he has his uh, one of his his better um, better entries in the Lovecraft mythos is his, the the recent book Revival which is, is one of his best, I think. It's fantastic. And it's a nice, short, succinct book. But it's that same kind of thing. Like you enter into the Cthulhu mythos and all of a sudden it's like, well, what would my life matter in that world? I'm so tiny and minute. And so there's always that that suffering, which doesn't seem to matter in that pain. And 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 that might be where the, the humor comes. Like you're laughing at the misfortune because it just seems so absolutely ridiculous, right? These people in these scenarios. Um, but I think the difference, right, if, if there had to be a difference or, or, or the key with what makes what makes something horror versus comedy is I think with horror, there's often that that under that that underlying drive, desire or intent to realign it, to try and bring it back again. Right. And, and King brings that out in Dance Macabre. Right. That, that that's why the, the resolutions are so rewarding, because at, at the end things get pulled back to a normal and even if not back to a normal to a tenable right to 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 a livable and and that's where i would say there's that empathetic connection that that in that compassion in that care any of these horrors are um are, are able to be faced are able to be dealt with in that connection to other people who are equally suffering right schopenhauer would say you know it's that that compassion for your fellow sufferers um, and, and whereas comedy doesn't, right? Comedy just leaves you on the laugh. Comedy just leaves you and goes, yeah, it's all ridiculous and then move on, right? But but horror really, I think, tries to amplify that feeling of discord, that feeling of chaos by getting us distraught, by, by driving it home to such a point that you're like, this is terrifying, right? That this is happening to human beings. And then also trying to bring it back again and say, and here's how you address it. Here's how you resolve it. So there's kind of a complete circle, or a, or a complete um, engagement with that. Um, it, so I think horror um, horror has a fundamental component in really trying to drive that dread and that terror to amplify that discordance, so that it, when it brings it back, the message is more um, palpable, more potent. That that there is that there needs to be a desire for coherence. That we need that. We can't we can't live in the chaos. We can't live in the discord. Whereas whereas comedy can. So one of the things you spoke about earlier was this notion that fiction can help us through moral dilemmas. That we can create a sense of empathy by going on this imaginative journey. I've always been intrigued by this notion of Hollywood justice. So we have let's say the ordinary rules of justice in our world. And those rules are not the same when you're watching a movie. So when you're watching a movie, if someone's particularly cool when they, um, you know, deliver a one-liner and assassinate someone, we root for them. We think, yeah, man, that was the right thing to do. You know, when James Bond sort of slaps a woman to the ground and you know molests her, we say, oh, well, that was the right thing to do given the rules of James Bond's game. He's a super sexy spy guy. Um, and and there's going to be times in a Stephen King book when you're not just rooting for those that face the monster, you're rooting for the monster. 
and you're enjoying the horrible things that they're doing that um, Mr. Mercedes is doing or that the clown from it is doing. And you think, yeah, I want more of that. Um, what What's going on? How do we sort of explain this philosophically? Is there a sense in which we suspend our moral norms in order to enjoy the fiction? And to some extent, if you don't suspend the moral norms, you're doing something aesthetically wrong. In other words, if you sort of read the Stephen King book, clutching your pearls the whole time and say, oh, this is terrible and I, and I don't like the way that this person is behaving, that's your fault. You know, you kind of need to uh, update your moral perspective in order to get the correct aesthetic perspective. Yeah, there's definitely a suspension, right? Um, yeah, James Bond's a perfect example. I'm a huge James Bond fan. I love it, right? And, and I go back and I watch him periodically. And I think to myself, I can't imagine being my mother and watching me as a 10-year-old boy loving James Bond as he's slapping Tiffany Chase, right, and pushing her on the bed, to, right? And it, it's like, wh why would you want your 10-year-old watching that? There's a, a suspension of judgment, right? And that's, I guess, what I would say. Not a suspension of moral norms, right? Because they're still there. But you're suspending judgment. I'm not going to judge James Bond because... He's, he's in a different world doing different things. And that's not to say that I'm going to accept relativism as my moral view, because I, I find relativism to be fundamentally self-defeating. But, but I'm not going to be a relativist, right, because I like James Bond. But I'm going to suspend judgment so that I can appreciate the full scope of the James Bond film. Because if I come into that movie judging him by my world standards, I'm going to miss something. Because the point of that movie is to give me an experience of James Bond in his world. And, and that's an experience that has to be assessed on its own right. And I would say it's the same thing with Stephen King. So when you read a horror novel, right, if you are reading it the entire time with your evaluation of, of our world and our values, you're going to miss something serious, right? Because, because it's not our world. It's a different world. And that's where the flexing of the, the kind of your emotional muscles comes in play. You've got to think that world as people in that world. And that means thinking it sometimes from the perspective of the monster, right? So when King writes, and sometimes a horrible person gets obliterated, right, or gets killed, and you might go, yeah, good. I'm glad they better get eaten. Right. Like, like you're, you're reading the book and you're like, I can't wait till that person dies. I'm going to be so happy. I, it's not Stephen King, but I remember that the experience watching Game of Thrones when Joffrey died. And I was never happier to see a child die in my life than to see Joffrey die. And I thought, am I sick? And I thought, no, I'm not sick. Right. Because one, I'm watching a show. And two, I know I'm not sick because I just asked myself the question, am I sick for enjoying that? And that's proof that I'm not sick, right? Because I'm having the wherewithal to be consciously aware that maybe I shouldn't be excited about the child dying. Why was I excited about the child dying? And now I'm, ex now I'm flexing those emotional muscles. Now I'm having that experience. So when, a, when an author, when a good author like Stephen King creates a world where there tends to be moral ambiguity or there tends to be a pushing of our world's moral norms, I read that as intentional. He's intentionally using that genre to get a point across that we need to address and play with this concept of moral ambiguity, that it's not all black and white and that we might like this idea. You mentioned the idea of Hollywood justice. We might like that idea in movies and films and in books, 
because we know we can't actually live that way, right? The world, we really don't want a world where we have James Bonds running around with licenses to kill, right? That's not a rule of law works much better than James Bond, right? Um, but part of that's also because we're not dealing with Dr. No and right Goldfinger and so on. But, but, um, but yeah, I, I think there's, you know, when you have those experiences, that's where it, it requires a mature self-conscious reader to, to, to pause and to think through it. Right. And, and that's the thing is, is reading any book, right. You know, Kant in the beginning of critique of pure reason, in, in one of the prefaces says, you know, you have to think through this book. And, and anyone who reads philosophy knows it takes a long time to read a philosophy book because every four or five pages, you're probably stopping and just sitting there staring off into space, thinking for 10 to 15 minutes, going back a few pages to see where that idea came from. Then you're back on your bookshelf and you're pulling other stuff off and you're like, well, this sounds like something Aquinas said. It takes forever. I think we need to read fiction the same way, right? We need to give it the seriousness it deserves when it's written seriously. And, and I think some of Stephen King is written seriously enough that, that you should pause, right? There, there are moments when you pause and go, whoa, man, whoa, what, why? What is that about, right? And sometimes if it's his 80s work, it might be, well, he was just on Coke. Like that, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm, that one, that's given, that's alcoholism and Coke, right? But sometimes, it's, you know what, he's really playing with something very interesting. And, and to anybody that doesn't think he's, he's a, a serious author, if you read his book on writing and you read Dance Macabre, his nonfiction series of essays on horror, he's an incredibly thoughtful writer, right? And everything he's doing, especially his mature work, is so intentional. That, that I don't think you can just write it off and go, well, am I a horrible person for wanting this guy to die? No, he wants me to have that thought. He, he wants the reader to have that experience so that you have to think about why did you enjoy that person dying? Why are you siding with the monster, right? And in thinking that thought, you, you, I think you develop, you, you develop morally, right? In that way of, well, I don't think I should side with the monster, right? I don't think I should side with that. I, I don't think I should feel this way. Why not? And now you're doing the interesting work that I think good literature does, which is, which is helps you develop by giving you test cases, by giving you the, the all these fundamental thought experiments on, on these ideas. I'm curious about what your thoughts are on trigger warnings and specifically when it comes to horror, because there's this push, um, towards having trigger warnings on fiction. And the trigger warning would forewarn the reader that they're going to be uncomfortable reading this section of the book because this issue comes up and it could trigger some trauma that they may have suffered in their past. Now, this seems particularly important when it comes to horror because as you've said, horror is designed to trigger discomfort and it is designed to push our boundaries of, of what we know and, and what we're comfortable thinking about. But if you give trigger warnings, then you might eliminate that experience because you forewarn them that they're going to feel uncomfortable about X, Y, Z. And so their entry into that feeling is not through the route that the author intends. Now, I could be wrong, um, but I don't think that there's any trigger warnings on Stephen King's fiction. Um, 
I'm curious whether you think trigger warnings should or shouldn't be on horror fiction. I think Stephen King's name on something is trigger warning enough. <laughs> I mean, but, but um, you know, when I think of trigger warnings, um, you know, I think of them often, I, I begin from my role as a teacher, right, as a philosophy professor. And and I, I offered them before we called them trigger warnings, right, is I would say, you know, we're going to be discussing, you know, I, in my contemporary moral problems class, we have a section on pornography. And I think that's important because pornography is ubiquitous, everyone's exposed to it, and they want to talk about how it helps frame sexuality and issues and so on with my students. So um, in order to do that, in order to be informed, you do have to be exposed, right? If I'm going to talk theoretically about pornography, I want the people I'm talking to to know what it is. So I have a documentary um, that I show on pornography, and it's it's pixelated, but it's still pretty rough, right? And so I always warn my students, you know, you can't unsee things. I think this is academically valuable. If you don't want to come to class that day, don't, you know, that kind of thing. But I give the trigger warning there because um, as a teacher, I'm offering an educational experience and I'm fully cognizant that I need to offer an equal experience to all my students. I want to make sure that all my students have a valuable experience. They're paying for the service. I mean, we can't get around that, right? I mean, and they're paying exorbitant prices when you look at tuition and then housing rates in the U.S. It's ridiculous. Student debt load uh, is astronomical. But um, but I give trigger warnings there because I want students to get a, a, a certain educational experience. I think it's it would be different if we're talking about literature, right? My students sign up for my class. And they should know what they're getting ahead of time because of the investment and because the role education plays in their um, pursuit of a degree and how that plays in their career and and their financial uh, viability and so on. Um, But on a book, you know, I think giving a trigger, again, I, I said it facetiously, but I think it's true, right? If you're reading a book by Stephen King, fair warning, right? It's Stephen King right? There's going to be weird, really weird stuff in there. I mean, there's that sex scene in it that is totally bizarre, right? And, and so there's going to be weird stuff. Um, I, I think the trigger warning there, to an extent, is, is I would say almost infantilizing, right? It, it's like if, if I'm an adult and I'm going to buy a horror book, and you're going to put a warning on it that says, you might be unsettled by this, I'm going to go, and? It's a horror book, right? If I want to read horror that's not scary, I'll stick to my Nancy Drew mysteries, right? But if if I'm an adult and I'm going to go read an actual horror book and you're putting a warning on there that says this might unsettle you, well, to an extent, I would hope so. If it's not, it's not a good book and why am I paying money for it, right? So um, I think- my My concern isn't that they would have a general warning, you know, that this would unsettle you. But for example, in it, say, there may be scenes of child sex in this mm-hmm. book. Um, when, the, when the warning, because trigger warnings are supposed to be more than just uh, there will be nudity language and violence in this movie or in this book, it, it's, it's specific. It's saying people with issues around rape may be triggered in this book or people around issues of child pornography or child sex may be triggered in this book by reading this book. You may give away a the storyline, um, but b you may give away the particular discomfort that's very important for the immersive experience. Yeah, and and I think that's right. I, um, I, I think you know 
this is an old school way of thinking. I know it is. And, and, and it, it's, it's, it, my, my libertarianism is going to come out, but um, to an extent, if I read a book and I get totally just like, if I hit a section, I'm like, Whoa, Oh my God, what is that? And I put it down. I find that valuable. I like that. Right. Because then it's like, Whoa, now, now I've got to check myself and I've got to go, hold on. Why did I react that way? Now I've got to, I've got to make a decision. Am I going to go back and work through that so that I get that developmental experience? Or am I going to go, it's not worth it to me as an individual. It's not worth it to me to have to vest the kind of emotional energy to deal with that. And there are things like that, that I've had, right. Where I've gotten into books um, and I'll get like halfway through, and I'll be like, this is no, I, I'm not vesting the energy in this one to make it through. Right. Um, not anything by Stephen King, but, but th there are certain ones where I'm like, I just, I don't care enough to put myself through that. But that's a choice I make as an adult, right? That's the choice I make as, as a mature, rational, reflective human being. Um, and, and, you know, my concern is if, if you put warnings like that on things and say people who might be triggered by child sex, people who might be triggered by rape, people who might, don't look at this, don't. Um, to an extent, and, and I, I apologize if this sounds callous, to an extent, I think that simply reinforces a culture that we have where people isolate in their own silos, where people listen to their own echo chambers and they don't ever go into that kind of uncomfortable area. And, and I'm not in any way trying to disparage somebody's experience, right? If somebody's a victim of sex assault, I'm not in any way trying to disparage them and saying, you know, toughen up and deal with it. That's not at all what I'm trying to get at. But um, I would be concerned that, that putting those specific warnings aside from giving away storylines and so on, because the whole time you're reading it, then you're going to be like, when do I get to that weird thing? When do I get to that weird? Aside from that, I think there's, you know, we are, we are timid creatures, right? And, and, and human beings tend to be a bit cowardly, right? We, we don't like to be challenged. We don't like to be discomforted. And so, I would be concerned that that kind of thing would would promote that intellectual isolationism, right? It, it's that I mean, it, it obviously needs, you know, I, I need more thinking on it, and and there are, are other issues involved there in terms of right sensitivity and responsiveness to people's legitimate traumas, but but in general, that trend to try and um, I, I don't know to the, the trend to try and make everything palatable or avoid it, I think is unhealthy, especially coming from a philosophy background where the, the whole intention of my program of study is to challenge and unsettle, you know. So I've got a couple of questions about authorship and authenticity with Stephen King. So he wrote a series of, um, of books under the name Richard Bachman. Uh, one of my favorite is uh, The Long Walk. So I've been on a number of hikes uh, with friends. Jason and I were on a hike once where uh, my shoes started to collapse. And I always have that thinking of oh, there's a scene in The Long Walk where, I mean, the, the premise is that you start off with hundreds of people. If you stop three times, um, you get shot and the last survivor wins the race. And there's something incredibly visceral about this. And so whenever I'm doing any kind of mildly aesthetic thing, I think about that moment. Um, so the first question is, well, is that a Stephen King book or not, given that he writes under this other name? 
The other one is in on writing, he talks about his alcoholism and his cocaine use and how he used it as a sort of crutch. Um, and at some point he felt like he could kick the crutch away. And he says that he was uh, involved in, in that kind of substance abuse to such an extent that he can't even remember writing Cujo. And so I wonder then, does Cujo count as a Stephen King novel if the author has no recollection of it? And is there some sense in which you have to be a certain kind of person to produce work that is yours and you have to have a particular mental state? And maybe if you adopt a persona like Bachman when you do the writing, then it is the persona that did the writing as opposed to King. Those are interesting um, ideas. You know, um, I think I, I think the simplest response is, you know, King would admit ownership of Bachman. I mean, he 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 does that when he explains why he doesn't let Rage be um, republished, right? I mean, Rage was a book about a school shooting before school shootings um, were a, a, a huge thing in, in the U.S. And so he doesn't allow that to be reprinted because he, he just doesn't like being affiliated with that. Um, so the simple answer is, yeah, they're King books because King accepts <laughs> attribution. But um, that doesn't answer the, the actual interesting, authentic question. But I mean, it, it's it's very similar to issues with Kierkegaard, right? And and, and writing under pseudonyms, and, and which were what's the real voice of Kierkegaard? What's his real thinking? What's his real thought? Um, I think the pseudonym thing it allows a certain free play for an author, right? If if they know that, you know, I mean, when he was first writing under Bachman, people didn't know it was King, right? Now people do know. So when you get like the regulators by Bachman, you know, you know who it is. Um, but but it gives people a certain free play to perhaps be experimental in a way they wouldn't have otherwise been. Or maybe it's a, a self challenge to see if you could still be successful, even if people didn't know who you were, right? You think of bands that do this, right? Like, like, um, was it was it Steve Winwood and Eric Clapton in Blind Faith, right? When they released that, and it was like, let's see if we could be successful if we were, you know, people didn't know we were Eric Clapton and Steve Winwood. Um, so, so I mean, to an extent, I don't, I don't know that the writing under a pseudonym challenges authenticity. I think it's just a different way for that author to try and engage an audience and try and see if they can still do it on their own, or right if they can play with something other, right, other than them, right. And, and then there's also that the whole kind of meta level analysis of right are they using the pseudonym to engage in a way with stuff right in their other corpus right so you get these interesting kind of um interplays there I, I think a more interesting question is the drug use question about you know if he doesn't even remember Cujo are they his you know I, I think at some point you know, there, there's interesting metaphysical and, and epistemological questions about personal identity and and what theory of personal identity we're going to adopt. And then, and then, you know, are the products of, of that person the same? Um, to an extent, it's I, I think I always go back to narrative identity, right, that that we know that Stephen King had these issues of alcoholism and drug use. We know that a lot of his works in that period of time are the product of that. Right. But they're still the product of Stephen King using drugs and being an alcoholic, right? So they are his. It's no different than if somebody were right, somebody were depressed in writing books, and then they go and get cognitive behavioral therapy and take medication, and they're treating their depression, and then they're writing books, and you go, is it the same person? Obviously, it's the same person. We have a narrative coherent storyline that explains 
how it's the same person. And then we just evaluate those works differently, right? It might be that we look at Cujo and we can see themes and trends and, and ideas in Cujo that are different or in that period, right? That time period when he also did Tommy Knockers and It and a lot of his classics, we can look at those versus his newer works and go, I wonder if there's a difference between the young king and the drug addicted king and the older, mature, sober king. Um, and I'm sure you will find interesting differences and interesting similarities, but but that's all part of the narrative story of the human being. And I, and I think that's just in general, an important point, right? Is it, to, to get back to, to contemporary kind of politic things, we're talking about trigger warnings, right? There's, there's all this talk about, right, cancel culture and all that kind of thing. And what, what did so-and-so say 20 years ago versus 10 years ago versus, and all those issues. And I think if we lose sight of the fact of this narrative identity that people are a person over time, it gets really easy to pick one thing and see that as definitive of who they are or to go, well, since Stephen King can't remember Cujo, it's not really his. And you go, well, but what else was he doing at the time? What else was he writing at the time? How can we contextualize that to understand it in the story that is Stephen King? Um, I, I think I, I think we need to keep that kind of broader perspective when we think about authenticity and identity, because human beings are a narrative across time, right? And and I would hate for any one individual to be assessed by the one worst thing they ever did or by, or by the one best thing they ever did, right? I mean, that's a problem too. I mean, that's why people have these horrific midlife crises and, right, athletes, right, have the, these, you know, you think of right when people fall from grace and so on you know if they, they have that that one brilliant moment when they're 30 or 35 and then they assess everything in relation to that without understanding this narrative i think we lose something um, we lose a perspective on on how humans develop as a whole as these kind of narrative creatures so um, when it comes to authenticity, it's, yeah, we just have to fit Bachman into the narrative that is Stephen King, and we have to fit Cujo into the narrative of Stephen King, and I think it makes them richer for that. Uh, I think it helps us get that context, right? Jacob, thank you so much for appearing on the show. This is a topic that I've wanted to talk about personally for a long time, and uh, it's been fantastic to to have an expert on. And thank you so much for answering all of our questions. Uh, and I really, I really mean that in a not just a polite sense. It was it was deeply helpful uh, to me as an author and very interesting. So thank you for your time. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it.